Well, good morning, and uh, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Jonah chapter 4. It's page 775 on a uh, blue pew Bible. We'd love for you to follow along with us if you do not have your own. And just a final announcement that uh, today, right after the service, is the Newcomer's Luncheon. Uh, it'll be right downstairs in Fellowship Hall. There's stairs at the back. There's stairs right outside this door. Um, and we'd love for you to join us. If it's your first Sunday, you get a meal. If it's your first Sunday, and you can come join us uh, downstairs. Just uh, meet some other people that are new in the church. Meet the staff. Um, hear a little bit about our convictions. We'll give you food, and we won't keep you more than an hour. So that's a good deal. And uh, we'd love for you to join us downstairs. Um, well, there's an old story, pretty well-known story. It's of a father, and he had two sons, and he was pretty wealthy. And the younger of the two uh, came to him and demanded that he be given his share of the family estate right now. I want to wait till you pass. I don't want to stay here with the family. I want my money. I want it now. And I want to go live my own life. And, and the father, for in some ways, reasons unknown, complies to this request, and the son takes his money, and he heads out of town, and he spends it loosely and lives foolishly and just follows the desires of his flesh, and it gets to a point where the money has dried up, and it's all gone, and a famine has hit the land at the same time, and he is miserable without work, without money, and he ends up being uh, just a laborer within, on a pig farm, and he hits rock bottom. And he's in this place of misery, and eventually he just comes to and says, you know what, my dad has laborers that have it better than I do. Maybe I can go back and just work for my dad. He won't restore the relationship. I don't expect, he doesn't expect anything of me. I don't expect anything of him, but maybe he'll just give me a job. I mean, after all, this is bad. I'm at rock bottom. It can't get worse than this. And so this young man heads home, and his father, almost as if, he was looking for him the whole time, seized his son coming from far out, feels compassion for him, and runs toward him and embraces him and forgives him and is just so excited. His boy is home and to have this relationship with him once again, and he wants to throw a party to celebrate. And it's this famous story. It's a story of grace. It's a story of forgiveness. It, it, it kind of captures the love a father has for his son. And it hopefully sounds familiar to many of you. It's about 2,000 years old, this story. And it's one that was told by Jesus. And it was told to a crowd in Luke chapter 15. And it's known famously as the uh, parable of the prodigal son. And, and, and that's how most people today remember it. This story of celebration and a story of grace and forgiveness. But it's actually not the end of the story. In fact, that's not even the main point of the story. You see, at the end, remember there was two brothers. And the older brother comes back into the picture. You see, he was working hard in the field, working for his dad. And he heard the commotion going back at home that there's a party going on. And so he returns to see what's going on. And he sees that this party is for his brother who took his share of the money and walked away a while back. And, and Jesus tells us in the story that he was angry. And the father goes out to talk to the older brother, and the older brother just goes off on him. He says, I've been here the whole time. I've never left, and my brother gets the party? What's going on here? 
And the father says to his son, Son, you will always be loved. You will always be cherished. You've always been here, and you know that. But your brother was as good as dead. And now he's back. He was lost, and now he's been found. And then the story ends. It's over. And you're kind of left to wonder, well, what's, what did he do? What did the older brother do? What was his response? But we don't get the response, which in lies the point. Because when Jesus told this story, he was addressing this group of really self-righteous Pharisees who prided themselves on doing good work. They've always been there. They know all the rules. They followed all the rules. And it's the story of trying to tell them about grace And the reason why there's no ending to the story is because Jesus kind of then poses this question to the Pharisees who were listening. And many people would think he probably just came up with that parable on the spot. He he had this crowd and he just wanted to talk to them about it and he just came came up with it out of thin air. But if one of these Pharisees were walking away, I wonder if some of them thought, you know, this sounds familiar. And there are some parallels between the parable of the prodigal son and the story of Jonah. We have taken, if you're just joining us, we've taken the last five weeks to walk through the first three chapters of Jonah. And many people, if they were asked about the story of Jonah, they would talk about the end of chapter three as the main point. You see, God first called Jonah to preach to the city of Nineveh. And he ran from God initially in rebellion, but God pursued him. He preserves him in the belly of the fish. He reinstates this relationship with him. And then he sends Jonah out a second time to go to Nineveh. And we saw it last week. He went and he preached and Nineveh amazingly repented. And it's this miracle of God's grace and forgiveness. And you think that is a great story. This is the best time in the story for the curtain to close. Show over. And admittedly, if I were writing a story... That's probably where it would end. That's a good ending. They lived happily ever after. But there's the chapter 4. And while the parable of the prodigal son is about two brothers, Jonah is unique in that he manages to play both roles himself. He was the younger brother who ran from the father but then returned and repented. And now we'll see the so-called older brother in Jonah come out in this final act. And we're going to learn after... After six weeks, what's the main point of Jonah? What's this all about? So we're going to find out today. So I'm going to read chapter 4 all up front, verses 1 through 11, and then we will unpack it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city, and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. 
And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Curtain closed. What is happening in this book? Is this really the ending? Let's walk through it. There's kind of three movements, three things I kind of want to bring up that I think will bring this to a close. Um, First is Jonah's anger. We see Jonah's anger. You see, anger happens when expectations are not met with something you care about. Think about anytime you're angry in your life, both those elements need to be there. Um, expectations are not met, something you care about. So number one, you're expecting something, and that something did not happen. Number two, this is something you care about. If you take any of those away, you're not angry. Okay, if your expectations are met, not angry. If your expectations are not met, but something you don't really care about, not angry. But Jonah is angry at God because his expectations didn't get met about something he cares deeply about. And after initially resisting the call, Jonah, we saw it last week again, went to this city and prophesied. Remember his big prophecy? It was eight words. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And Nineveh heard this message. And against all expectations, one of the biggest miracles in the Bible They believed God and repented of their evil. So as it turns out, God used this warning from Jonah not to just condemn them, but as a means of grace. This warning was a means of grace that caused them to change. And now Jonah, the prophet who preached to them and saw this amazing revival, is miserable. He is miserable that he was so affected. Reminds me of a biography I read a couple years back of a guy named Nick Saban. Nick Saban, he's one of, if not the best, college coaches of all time. He's currently at Alabama. Uh, But his first national championship he won, he was the coach of LSU. And after that first national championship, he was in the locker room afterwards, after the trophy ceremony, all the celebration on the field that goes back to the locker room. Everyone's going crazy. And Nick Saban is sitting in his office with his head in his hands. And the assistant coach kind of walks in and is like, what are you doing? And Saban looks up at him and says, quote, why don't I feel happy? Where do I go from here? And we go on to say that night, he began writing up practice plans for the next year. He didn't know what to do with it. He got to the top of the mountain. He had no idea how to respond in this. He was miserable. He was so effective because how could he motivate his team to win next year when they already won this year? He was miserable from all his success. And here we have Jonah, a preaching prophet, saw a massive arrival, and he is angry about it, exceedingly angry the verse said, um, because Nineveh is not just 
any city. It's the capital city of Assyria, the Assyrian Empire, which is Israel's greatest enemy at this point. And so this is the outcome that he feared all along. And so he goes off on God, just like the older brother goes off on the father in Jesus' parable. And he goes, what's this all about? Isn't this the reason I ran from you? I tried to get away. I just knew you were going to go and pull something like this. I can't trust you with this. You know, and then he goes on to recount these character traits of God. Um, and anytime these uh, phrases or words for God are used in the Bible, they're almost always used as a means of worship. And like these are good things. Everywhere except here. You are slow to anger. You are merciful. You are gracious. These notable traits are now the source of Jonah's anger. I've tried to kind of show you throughout this series that Jonah, for just a really short book, maybe it takes you 10 minutes to read in total, is, is filled with repetition. And it's filled with parallels and these kind of words on repeat that are meant to show us something. Um, and here we see Jonah prayed to God in chapter 4 to yell at him in anger. Contrasted with his prayer in chapter 2 that was to pray to give him praise in worship. And at the end of that prayer in chapter 2, Jonah kind of climaxed at that place to say that God is a God of steadfast love. It was the source of his worship. And now in chapter 4, that same steadfast love is the source of his anger. Like, what's going on there? Jonah is not mad that God extends steadfast love because he knows more than anybody the only reason he is alive is because of God's steadfast love. He's mad that God extends this same steadfast love to the wrong people. See, Jonah's expectations were not met, and he's so upset, and he's feeling so sorry for himself. He's feeling so sorry for Israel. He's probably a little fearful. He's going to go back to his people and be like, you're the reason why our enemies repented. Like, something tells me him, like, waltzing back into Israel, he's not going to be received very well. And so he says to God, I'd rather die right now. I cannot trust you with this. It was just a couple weeks ago when we saw Jonah recommit himself to the Lord. And if you remember in that week, I said the Christian life is this kind of constant journey of two steps forward, one step backward. That growth is never kind of uninterrupted. It's kind of jagged growth. And part of the reason why I said that is because I knew Jonah chapter 4 was coming. This is just the Christian life. You soar on the wings of eagles and then we fall again. We worship the Lord and then we yell at the Lord. And it's just kind of long and winding journey And the idol that Jonah is still struggling with is this idol of nationalism. Okay? He is glad to receive God's grace as as part of God's chosen people. But he hates, he hates the thought of an outside people getting that same grace. So, So Jonah loves God. I think we can agree after reading the book of Jonah. Jonah loves God. He's grateful to God. But he seems to love his ethnicity more than God. And it's not wrong to proudly love your nation, to pray for your nation, as Pastor Jeff just did very well. It's not wrong to have a distinct ethnicity as part of your identity, but it becomes an idol when our love for that ethnicity or that nation now supersedes our love for God. 
And, and Jonah is still kind of entangled in this web of, of us versus them. And I, I, I packed that uh, probably in our second week, that this idea that it's just so pervasive in us. It's just us versus them. We put ourselves in a group, and we put other people in another group, and we just throw stones. And they are not like us. And so they do not deserve that same steadfast love. And this is the foundational layer across history of any kind of racism or prejudice as based on ethnicity. But Jonah was blinded to one very important fact. And this is the first time I'm going to weave this into the storyline. Um, a lot of the evil and injustice that was present in Nineveh was also present in Israel at this very same time. While Jonah was speaking against Nineveh, there were other prophets, guys like Hosea, guys like Amos, who were giving some of these same warnings to Israel. And Jonah was blinded to this because he refused to believe that God's grace is equally needed by all people. And so he had no problem with this grace and mercy being to given towards Israel, who has some of the evil and same injustices happening in their culture, but he does not want this to go to Nineveh. No, this is us versus them, and we get it. You should not get it. And so on one level, we can go, Jonah, come on, get a grip, man. Can't you see this? This is so hypocritical. Um, but, man, I, my spirit was just provoked in this because I think if we're honest, we can resonate with some of Jonah's anger towards Nineveh because of his anger towards injustice. There was a special kind of evil he saw in Nineveh that made him think, there's no way God can really just let them off the hook like this. I'll tell you why my spirit was provoked in this. It was about a week and a half ago. Rochelle and I are awake. We got the younger two in bed. We got the older, the, no, older two in bed. We got the twins we're trying to put to bed and we're just having a conversation and she tells me about this article that she read earlier that day about sex trafficking and how it's quickly becoming the biggest thing that nobody is talking about. Because you hear sex slavery if you're like me and you think, yeah, that's a thing, but that's a thing out there. Maybe your mind goes to like Southeast Asia. Maybe you think external third world countries where the sex trafficking industry seems to really be booming and to think that that stuff is not really happening here and that is simply not true. And I'm going to keep this language as non-graphic as I possibly can. But did you know, according to USA Today, in the United States, adults purchase children for sex at least 2.5 million times a year. The average age of a girl being forced into the sex slave industry in the United States, 300,000 girls a year, is 13 years old. And they go as young as nine. 2.5 million times a year. 6,850 times a day. 285 times an hour, five times a minute, an adult purchases a minor girl for sex in the United States. And it's become easily the most lucrative illegal business. You know why? An ounce of drugs can be sold once. A girl can be sold 15 times a day. It's recurring revenue. 
It's good business. And the target clientele that is paying for this, it's not the gang members, that you feel think are down and out. They are well-to-do, normal Americans that otherwise would live completely normal lives. Maybe you might say, Pastor, we're in church. This is getting a little uncomfortable. And I say, I know that. And I can say it for two reasons. One, we have to get our heads out of the sand and get in the fight. Number one, God hates the slave trade. He hates it. He wants his church to be at the forefront of fighting against it, and it's time we start asking questions. How can we be involved individually and as a church? That's number one. And a lot of it, to show you where does that start, starts with the porn industry. But I won't go there right now. Number two, I need to be honest. When it comes to God's saving grace coming upon those involved in running and participating in the sex slave trade, you know what? I'm with Jonah. In fact, Rochelle brought this up in our conversation because obviously we're going through Jonah. She goes, I can understand Jonah's anger. You know what? These guys deserve the worst. And in that moment that I look back and say, you know, Rochelle, God wants us to pray for them, save them, to show his grace to them. In that moment, two babies in her arms, two little ones sleeping down the hall, feel my blood boiling. I looked back at her and I nodded. I said, I know. And as hard as it is to admit, here's what's happening. I'm thinking, I know I don't deserve God's grace. I'm a pastor, man. I know that. I study it every single week and I'm grateful for it. But those guys do not deserve it. It's different. And I have to be honest about that. So I think we can resonate with Jonah's anger more than we may initially think. Anger towards evil and sex trafficking and sin, that is righteous anger. And it's anger, but we have to start with our own sin. But if that anger keeps us from wanting others to experience the grace of God, that becomes unrighteous anger towards God. And anger towards God is never righteous anger. And God calls this out with a question that he asks Jonah. He says, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? And it goes unanswered for now. First, we saw Jonah's anger. Second, we see God's lesson. We see God's lesson. Um, God, in yet another manifestation of his grace, is just not going to allow Jonah to go unchallenged, right? Just again, like the father in Jesus' parable went out from the party to confront the older brother, so God will now confront Jonah and he'll use his sovereign power to get his point across. And Jonah heads up out of the city onto a hill overlooking Nineveh. Notice he, he makes a booth for himself. He tries to give himself some shade because the sun's hot, he's in the desert, build his own coverage, but he wants to sit here. I think a couple reasons why he wasn't sitting here. He doesn't want to go back to Israel. He doesn't think he's going to be received well there. But also, he is still expecting that God will change his mind about changing his mind and that he will still destroy this city after 40 days. And I'm going to sit on this hill and I'm going to watch it happen. And God, we're told, appoints a plant to come up over Jonah. That same word, appoint, is the word that Jonah used for, to show God's control over the big fish that swallowed him in the ocean. God appointed an aspect of his creation 
This time it's a plant, and it miraculously grows overnight to being full-grown. Uh, most commentators think it's like a castor oil plant or something with big leaves that grew in this part of the region. And it was large enough to provide him shade. And you notice again the word play here. Jonah becomes exceedingly glad canceling out his prior emotion of being exceedingly angry in verse 1. And Jonah is once again the recipient of grace. He's literally living in the shadow of his grace, of God's protection from the heat of the sun, and he has it for a full day. It was probably a glorious day for Jonah. I'm going to see some fireworks and see the city get lit up, and I got shade. And he's eagerly anticipating this, but then God's lesson starts to come. He, again, appoints. That word keeps coming up again. Jonah, the theme we see all throughout. Jonah is sovereign over all creation. Every aspect of his creation is under his control at all times, whether we realize it or not. He appoints a worm to eat the plant. And then he appoints an eastern wind. So now Jonah is in full exposure to the sun on the brink of heat exhaustion. And his emotions are just swinging wildly. And again he says, I'd rather die than live. And God asks Jonah a second time. And he gets more specific. He says, Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Meaning, are you angry that the plant was here and healthy and then it died and couldn't provide any protection from the sun any longer. And this time Jonah answers, and he says clearly, yes, I'm angry about the plant. I'm so angry I want to die. And then this is where God lands the punchline. He says, Jonah, you pitied the plant. You're weeping over the plant. You're upset it died. It grieved you, and you did nothing for it. It came and it went in a day, and yet you're showing compassion. See what God's doing here? He's going, there it is. There is compassion in you. You are capable of it, and you're showing it for the plant. And yet you have no pity for an entire city getting wiped out. And so he exposes Jonah, not just to the sun, but also to his own irrational anger and lack of compassion. And there's, just, there's something instructive here for us. You, you have this tension of, of temporal concerns versus eternal concerns, right? Jonah was capable of compassion, but it's misguided. It's wrapped up in just the here and now. And to be honest, it's all about him. Because this is not just a plant. This is the plant that gave him shade. And so it's self-absorbed. So much so, he couldn't see the inconsistency. You see, again, he was glad when he received it, but he had no care of this same grace going towards others, the kind of grace that would be long-lasting, even eternal. And here's why it's instructive for us. We are, 2019, in a cultural moment where it's easy, so easy, easy, easy for us to live lives that are self-absorbed. This world wants you to live lives that are self-absorbed. It's you. It's all about you. Every commercial, every marketing ad, every tweet of somebody saying, you got to live your best self. you got to find yourself first. Love yourself first before you can love others. This is the doctrine of our culture. Self-absorption, my comfort, my life. And we love personal pronouns. And we get wrecked over temporary things in our lives that get taken from us. And we have no care or compassion left over to care for others. And it wastes the energy and compassion that God gives us. This is God's lesson. 
Now we land the plane here with the closing question of Jonah. God now contrasts himself to Jonah, and he does it in the form of a question, because we've seen over and over in the Bible, questions do more to to reveal things in our hearts than statements, don't they? And he says, Jonah, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? See, God loves his creation. He loves his plants more than we do, but only one part of his creation was made in his own image, in his own likeness, and it's people, and it's man and woman, and and so he reserves his compassion for people, his most deepest compassion, and he yearns for them to live according to the way he's designed them, and and now we're kind of wading into some deep waters, but God is sovereign over people, sovereign over all things, and yet he leaves them with the responsibility to either obey his word or rebel against it. And when people rebel against him, it doesn't surprise him, it doesn't weaken him, it doesn't make him any less God than who he is as God, but it does grieve him. Look at these verses. This is just before the time of Noah, Genesis 6, way back at the beginning of your Bible. Genesis 6, verses 5 and 6. Look at this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and look, and it grieved him to his heart. God is not surprised by brokenness and sin, but it grieves his heart when he sees the rebellion of his creation. And his grace and his compassion is sent out from this grief. And he says, should I not pity Nineveh? It's a great city. And he says this interesting line. He says, where there's 120,000 persons who don't know their right from their left. I think there's a little bit of a double meaning behind this statement. I think it's both literal and figurative. Um, 120,000 referring to the number of young children in Nineveh, those who literally do not know their right hand from their left hand. He says, should I not pity them? And I think that would line up with historical sources because the population of Nineveh at this time was about 500,000 to 600,000. So that's the accurate average ratio of young children to an overall population. But I think there's also a figurative meaning here. To not know your right hand from your left is a phrase used in Scripture to indicate confusion, spiritual confusion, to be completely and utterly lost and helpless to the things of God, blinded to it all. I don't even know my right hand from my left hand when it comes to God and the world and origins and salvation. He says they are just confused. And then this is me just surmising here, but I think God then takes a sarcastic shot at Jonah when he adds, and much cattle. Since Jonah showed compassion for a plant, maybe he will at least show compassion for all the cattle in Nineveh if he can't muster it up for the people. But here's God's point. My relentless grace flows from my compassion and love for those who are made in my image. The most famous verse in the Bible speaks to this. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Here's where we get to the meaning of Jonah. Because you see, Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's compassion. 
He embodied that compassion all throughout his ministry. Do, do you remember when we were going through the Gospel of Mark? Uh, the, the scene that set up the feeding of the 5,000, big miracle, famous miracle in Mark chapter 6. The reason why it happened is because Jesus was trying to get away from the crowds. He was teaching them, but got in a boat, tried to get away from them, and the crowds were like, nope. And they followed him. And they don't care where we're going. They go to this remote area. And now it's the end of the day and there's no food. But Jesus comes upon the shore. We read this in Mark 6, 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And he had compassion on them. Because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. They didn't know their right hand from their left. And he had compassion and not only did Jesus teach and heal, he saw his compassion through to the end. And he gave his life to stand in the place of judgment for sin towards sinners. To overcome death for us and to offer us new life in him. You see, Jesus came not to condemn the world, but in order that the world may be saved through him. You see, it's through Christ and only Christ that anyone who turns from sin and trusts in him will be saved from God's judgment and will be with him forever. Well, God asks this question to Jonah, and then the curtain closes. And we never heard how the older brother responded, and we will never know how Jonah answered here. And the reason is because this was written, this was not a false ending, but this turns the question onto the reader. The original readers would have been the nation of Israel, who I mentioned earlier were also hearing warnings from prophets at the same time for the same evils and same injustices that pervaded their nation. And the message was the same. It's a warning as a means of grace. And God's relentless grace will go out to all those who repent of their evil. And the tragic irony overlapping all of Jonah is that while Nineveh, not even God's people, repented and believed, Israel ultimately does not. We were first introduced to Jonah in 2 Kings 14. I want to read a couple verses in 2 Kings 17, three chapters later. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Jonah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. Verse 14, But they would not listen but were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. Curtain closed. Jonah is not only a beautiful story of repentance and salvation when God's grace is received, it's also a tragedy of judgment when God's grace is resisted. And so as we reflect on Jonah as a whole, Grace Church 2019, here's two questions we're left with today. Number one, will we trust God and obey his word even when we don't fully understand it? God is leaning down to Jonah, looking him in the eye and saying, Jonah, you can trust me with this. And I wonder what it is in your life right now that you cannot see fully and just need to simply trust Jesus with. What weight of anger or burden are you carrying that you are not supposed to be carrying? That through the Holy Spirit you can trust the Lord with? It's a big question. One we shouldn't rush 
too quickly to answer. But then number two, will we love others enough to share the good news of saving grace with them? Will you love enough? Will you have enough compassion to share the good news with the world that needs it? This is not meant to be a drive-by guilting to end the sermon, but an honest reflection on our own hearts that do we see people, all people, regardless of who they are or what they've done or what they look like or where they come from, do we see all people as being made in God's image that we long to see saved by God's grace? It's not our job to change people's hearts. It's not our job to judge or force people into anything, but merely to be vessels and witnesses of God's relentless grace and trust them with the rest. So there's the book of Jonah. Will you trust him? Even when you don't see it, will you love others enough to share the good news with them? We don't know Jonah's answer. How about yours? Let's pray.